Father, we love you this morning, and we offer ourselves to you afresh. May you minister your grace among us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I was teasing Harry this morning and said, uh, I really wasn't sick last week. I was actually laying on the bridge uh, barrier up in uh, Sedona and called Father Peter in the morning saying, hey, I'm sick. Can you cover the message for me? And that's, that's not true. I was actually sick. I'm, I'm, I'm about 90% right now in my energy, so I'm glad to be back and glad to be with you. Uh, and I was supposed to finish the uh, series, on, series from Romans last week. It's not a series on the Romans from beginning to end. Uh, we're actually ending in the 15th chapter, but this is a series from Romans. And just to uh, know that uh, last time Peter preached two weeks ago uh, on Romans, and now I preach today, these are really sequential. And so what I want to do as I begin my sermon this morning is just to capsulize a couple main points from Father Peter's sermon uh, from two weeks ago. Uh, he preached a sermon called The Heart of Welcome, which really beginning in Romans 14.1 and then Romans 15.7, it's really bookended by this sense of uh, exhortation to welcome one another. And so uh, Heart of Welcome was really the sense of his message. But in that message, what he presented, I think, was very significant. It's something that not everybody accepts, but it's something that I would encourage you to consider as a way to think about Christian theology. And it's the idea that there are three tiers, T-I-E-R-S, tiers of Christian truth that we need to acknowledge and to embrace. The first tier are creedal truths, truths from the creeds and moral absolutes. They're truths that all Christians believe through the centuries. They're ones that we held together. And uh, when you think about the creeds, uh, the creeds were written situationally. Uh, there were situations where there were false teachers out there and uh, presenting truths that, uh, or ideas that were not necessarily biblical or apostolic. And so they determined to take the apostolic teaching, apply them to these false teachers, and to, re- and to create creeds. And so we have the Apostles' Creed, and the Nicene Creed, and the truths that are there. And these become an outline for orthodox faith, right thinking about theology. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So creation, these are truths that separate Christians basically from non-Christians or cultic groups uh, in the whole realm of things. Tier two truths are truths that are of conviction or conscience. Many times when you look at these truths, they don't divide Christian from non-Christian, they divide Christian from Christian. You go to doctrinal statements, you go to statements of faith on websites for churches and for universities and for denominations, And they have truths that they differ from one another, and they make that a point of difference as they lay out their doctrinal statement. I would say that baptism is tier one truth. What baptism looks like, whether you immerse somebody or pour water over the head, that's tier two. Whether you baptize a believer only or whether you baptize also children, that's tier two. And so you have these different tiers that are there, and these different separate out Believer from unbeliever, denomination from denomination are distinctions. That's tier two. Tier three are truths that are mere opinions or preference. They don't rise to the level of real doctrine or conviction, but they are firmly held beliefs that that a lot of people hold. Uh, Whether we use hymns or praise songs, whether we wear vestments or blue jeans, or whether we uh, uh, observe the Sabbath or 
different styles of worship. Those fit in that third category. And sometimes you have those differences of opinion within the same congregation. We might differ among ourselves on those particular items. Now, realize that not everybody accepts these three tiers as ways to organize Christian truth. It's something that I've found to be a wonderful tool for me as I separate out uh, distinctions. That Number one, how can I maintain unity in the body of Christ? How can I relate to someone from another denomination? I want to make sure we agree on tier one truths. Tier true, I'm going to give a lot of latitude. Tier three, I don't really care. <laughs> you know, it really doesn't matter that terribly much. But I want to share with you basically a story uh, that relates to this and puts this into real life. Father Peter called these disputable matters, tier two, tier three, and, and that's what I think Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 14. In 2007, uh, I sensed a call for a number of reasons, a direction to move from Palm Beach Atlantic University where I was teaching in beautiful West Palm Beach, Florida, to Cedarville University in Corn Country, Ohio. And uh, Cedarville was seeking to make a move at that time to move beyond its fundamental Baptist background to become more mainstream evangelical. That was their purpose. And they knew that I had gone through that process, fundamental Baptist to more mainstream, and they thought I might be able to help with that process, and so I was invited to come, along with 10 other faculty members who joined the Bible and theology department. And these were wonderful people, cream of the crop people, people I honor to this day as my friends and uh, colleagues. But Cedarville was one of those institutions at the time that had a very explicit, long doctrinal statement with a strong mixture of tier one, tier two truths. Definitely Trinity, definitely the divinity and uh, humanity of Jesus, salvation by faith through grace, the authority of Scripture, good Orthodox and Protestant uh, positions of faith. But they went even more explicit than that. On the sign gifts, tongues, various signs, they were apostolic. They weren't for the church after the apostolic era. Eschatology, you had to believe in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ in the rapture. And so that was their position. On baptism, it was reserved for believers only, no infant baptism. And for churches, they would be led by pastors and deacons and not priests, not bishops, and even not elders as far as terminology would go. And while uh, we were told something different when we came there, because they were seeking to move, they, were, they told us, you know, there are essentials in our doctrinal statement, but there are some things that are not quite so essential. One of my colleagues, as he was being interviewed, when it came to the rapture, my, the chair of our department asked him, do you believe it at least 50%? <laughs> and I say, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> I believe it 50, this half of my brain <laughs> believes it, this half doesn't. And I was like, what does that mean? But as time went on, and there was sort of a fundamentalist resurgence at our university, we came to the point where there was absolutely no wiggle room on any one of these doctrines that we were told there was wiggle room on as we came in. And so, for instance, we were supposed to believe in a rapture of the church, that Christ would come and everybody's going to rise up and uh, you know, cars were going to go off the highway and all these types of things, in the same way we believe in the Trinity of God. As things became more contentious uh, through time, our Bible faculty was put under the hot... Uh, uh, I can't explain. We were put on a hot spot, and uh, we were told that we had to believe all these doctrines 100%. And uh, we were also told at the same time that our trustees were in a process of revising the doctrinal statement. 
They're not theologians. They're not Bible professors. They are individuals who are revising the doctrinal statement, but we're supposed to believe the old statement 100%. Otherwise, we're unfaithful. We've been dishonest to actually be at the university. And so what it came down to was power and submission. Their power, our submission. When I came to my six-year tenure review, as some of you might know, in the universities, after six years, you have the opportunity to present yourself as a candidate for tenure, and that gives you greater security. I came to my tenure review, and I had uh, glowing uh, letters of recommendation all the way through, but I sat down with my provost, who was on the other side of things for me, and he asked me if I had any reservations about the doctrinal statement. And I shared with him my theory, my idea about tier one, tier two truths. And I said, I have no difficulty with the university holding tier one, tier two truths, but I wish they would distinguish between the two. And I would say, I hold firmly without any level of reservation the main tier one truths. And the tier two truths were part of my story, part of my history, but I don't hold them with the same tenacity that I hold to tier one truths. And as we went on back and forth, I said my greatest concern was not so much what the university held for positions, but how it held those positions and how we were required to hold those positions in our hearts, in our lives. And as we talked further and further, I, 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 was, I shared my concern about the dogmatism, about secondary issues, how to a certain extent the university considered people either unfaithful or not even Christians if you don't believe these secondary and tertiary matters. And as we got toward the end, he disagreed with me vehemently, he denied my tenure, and he held that against me till the day I left the university. Now, in my first two decades as a Christian, I came into the world of Baptist fundamentalism. I didn't know any different. And I was an expert in disputable matters, the things <clears throat> that Romans 14 and 15 are dealing with. I was trained to be a judge and a critic and an objective examiner of everything and everyone else. That's the nat nature of Baptist fundamentalism and evangelicalism to a certain extent on its, on its more right-wing stances. And that's what leaders of colleges, leaders of churches, and Bible college professors did. We judged everything and everyone. It's our job because we're right about everything uh, as far as that is concerned. We know every topic and we're authoritative on everything. We're right. There's one ultimate right position on every issue, and we held it, and that's the way it was supposed to be. Ironically, what I've learned over the years is the less educated and less trained one is, the more authoritative one can be. I used to have this sign on my door. I used to quote myself. Nobody would quote me, so I always put, put quotes of myself on my, on my window outside my door. <laughs> and one of my quotes of myself was, it is the luxury of those who know the least to be dogmatic. It's a luxury of those who know the least to be dogmatic. Write that down so you can quote me. <laughs> uh, and I was good at it. At least that was my understanding of being good as a uh, disputable matters expert. Let me share with you a story, and you can judge for yourself whether I was good at it or not. After my first year of college, 1996, 1976, uh, as an 18-year-old dogmatist, I came home and wanted to witness to my family. I'd memorized the Romans Road's plan of salvation. Everybody know the Romans Road? Going through Romans, uh, Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23. Uh, you might not know this. Uh, but it's these postulates, these truths that we're supposed to share with people to lead them to Christ. 
And uh, we actually had a pizza joint just off campus. It was called Roman's Road Pizza Joint. On an every box uh, lid uh, for the pizzas they would sell, they had the Roman's Road Plan of Salvation. Pretty cool, right? It's just wonderful. Uh, when I went back home, I wanted to witness to my sister. And one of the things the Roman Road teaches you in your plan of salvation is you're supposed to establish, number one, that people are sinners, and then you can tell them about the Savior from sin, Jesus Christ. Make sense? That's logical? Yes. So I'm trying to convince my sister that she's a sinner. And I said, and here's my slam dunk convincing proof. I said, I know you're a sinner. Just look at, you're wearing pants. <laughs> Brittany? <laughs> front row, gosh, front row. <laughs> what, what am I going to do? <clears throat> you're wearing pants. Of course you're a sinner. I wish you knew how stupid I feel <laughs> for having said that to my sister. How stupid I feel for having believed that. But that's the type of thing I was taught. And that's the type of thing I wanted to believe because those who taught me were people I loved and esteemed and held high. I'm a pretty intelligent guy. My father-in-law was the principal of our school and he told me one time, and he thought I had 140 IQ. I think he added a zero on there. <laughs> so I've earned a bachelor's degree, a master of divinity degree, a master's of art, a PhD. And I still, and with all of that, I can be stupid and I can be naive. And I have been in so many different ways. I was duped by the dogmatism and divisiveness of fundamentalism. And I didn't understand what it meant to walk in Christian love. And I didn't understand that one of the most essential truths as we look at fellow believers across the world is that we're all works of God. Everyone is a work of God that God is doing. Every person has been created by God, obviously through procreation. But he's also redeemed us. Christ died for the ungodly. He might bring us to faith. He's working in all of our lives to sanctify and set us apart and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And one day, every one of us is going to be like him even as he is in the consummation. And God is doing that work in every single person. If you look around this room, every person in this room is a work of God. You can even say it. I'm a work of God. I'm a work of God. Listen to these grace-filled passages. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of your works, so that no one may boast, for we are what? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his own good pleasure. Father Peter preached on Romans 8, 28, and the NIV translates it. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and for those who call upon his name.
Can you think of a more wonderful thought? We're all works of God. And we all share in that work in our own lives and in the lives of other people. We share in doing the work of God. And when I think about the work of God, how he does it, I think of God being a gracious and tender God, a merciful God, one of compassion and gentleness, patience and long-suffering. In Matthew chapter 12, the apostle Matthew uh, indicates Isaiah 42 is a fulfillment of Jesus. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory in his name, the Gentiles, with hope. That's Jesus' work. That's Jesus' ministry. He will not break a bruised reed. A smoldering wick he will not quench. So why am I saying that in the midst of all a sermon on disputable matters? I hope you noticed as David read our text this morning from Romans chapter 14 that two times in this text we're exhorted not to destroy the work of God. Listen to it in Romans 14, 15. Fear if your brother is grieved by what you eat. You are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. By your liberty, by what you do, by what you say, by what you think, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Romans 14, 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. The Greek word for destroy is and It's a word that is used for divine judgment. It's also used as a word for Satan's work and activity where he comes as a thief to steal, to kill, and destroy. As a matter of fact, one of the names for Satan in Scripture is Apollume, the destroyer, the one who comes to destroy. And the word has metaphorical meaning for us because what it means is somehow by smashing or pulling down the work that God is doing, we're contributing to destroying the very work of God instead of building up, as Paul talks about in this passage of Scripture. I'm reminded of the stern warning of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 where he's uh, giving a warning to those and he brings a child to himself and talks about little ones in his midst. And he says, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to, that believes in me to, to sin, to stumble and fall, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened about his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. How can we destroy our brother or our sister? Father Peter, when he talked about this a couple weeks ago, there were two words that he pointed out very clearly, and that was despising or judging our fellow believers. Uh, viewing people with uh, disdain because they differ from us in certain ways. And the text we read this morning adds two to that, despising and judging, but also grieving and causing others to stumble. Grieving. By acting upon our liberty or believing what we do or, or trying to force our views on other people, we grieve or offend the conscience of the one who observes us. They're saddened, they're confused, they're distressed, they're thrown off by their actions. And they might even ask, how could a Christian do something like that? 
We cause them to stumble. It takes a step further. Not only do they, do they uh, see our, 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 our liberty and are grieved and saddened by it, they might follow our example. And by following our example, they actually assault their own conscience and offend themselves, and they become guilty and downtrodden, and they might even give up on their walk of faith. And Paul says when you're participating in those things and doing things that put your brother and sister at risk, you're actually working against the very work of God that he's doing in every person's life. We're working against God's purposes, and we're not motivated by love. Let me cut to the quick, because I think there are several ways that we from this text can extract out and say, well, how can we prevent ourselves from doing that? How can we prevent ourselves from being individuals who participate in destroying the very work of God that God is doing in other people's lives? And I think there are four things I want to just acknowledge to you and just raise out to you. The first is, acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ in other people's lives. Jesus Christ is Lord over everybody's life in this room, and I am not, and you are not. We're not Lord over other people's lives. Sounds so basic, but sometimes when we try to impose our views on other people, we judge them to be in conformity to our views. We're basically taking up the position of Jesus in another person's life. Jesus is Lord on two counts. He created all things in all people, and he died and rose again to redeem them. And because of that, he functions and his lordship in two specific ways. He's the judge of all. We will, every one of us, stand alone before the judgment seat of Christ. And he is the teacher of us all. He's our instructor. Paul was very convinced of the work of God in convincing believers of the truth. In this text, he says, be fully persuaded in your own mind before the Lord. You, you do what you do as unto the Lord. Acknowledge him as Lord of your life, and you do it as unto him. Be convinced in your own mind. God will teach you. Do it in honor of God. Do it with thanksgiving. Do it in faith, but God will teach you. One of my favorite passages about Paul, he's, he's an interesting guy, Paul was. I'd like to know him as a person. Uh, he just was very dogmatic, uh, sort of uh, you know, hard driver type person. And uh, he says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, after he's given a discourse on a certain matter, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. In other words, I'm right, and you need to be thinking this way. And he says, but if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that even to you. What's he saying? He said, I'm not going to try to persuade you. I'm not going to try to ram it down your throat. I'm not trying to, uh, he's saying, God will convince you if it's true. That's humble. That's just stepping back a little bit and saying, God, your teacher. When you come to 1 John chapter 2, John is convinced, along with Paul, that God's the teacher. And in that text, he talks about every one of us has received an anointing of the Lord. And that anointing teaches us. In 1 John 4, uh, 2, 26 through 27, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. Now, John's not trying to diminish human teachers. God's given gifts of teaching to his church. But the ultimate teacher of every one of us in the death of our soul who persuades us of the truth, who convinces us and convicts us, is the Holy Spirit of God and the triune God who ministers in our lives. 
I've changed my opinion on a lot of things over the course of my pilgrimage. I'm glad to say that. I no longer think you're in sin this morning. <laughs> and you know what? Every person here is on a journey. We're all at a different spot. And we all have blind spots. And we all have things that we probably believe that 20 years down the road we're going to feel embarrassed about. I really thought that. I really believe that. I think I'm closer to the truth now than I was before. But who knows? <laughs> God does, right? He's my teacher. One of the things that Father Peter prays a lot of times before he preaches, and I, I commend him for this, he says, whatever is from you, God, may it stand up. But whatever is from me, may it blow away and, and depart. And I think that's a worthy prayer. It's not incumbent upon me and you to judge or convince or persuade or determine or arbitrate what God places in the hearts and minds of his followers, particularly when it comes to tier two and tier three truths. Should we share in common the tier one? I say yes, absolutely. But tier two, tier three, liberty, freedom. And I'm not going to assume the place of God in the place of our Lord Jesus Christ to be your teacher of your conscience. That's God's place. So first of all, acknowledge the lordship of Christ. Second, walk in love. And this is just simple. Walk in love with one another. You are no longer walking in love when you try to impose and offend the conscience and cause another person to stumble by what you believe. Paul in Romans chapter 13 had a short exposition on love in Romans 13, 18 through 20. In verse 13 uh, through 11 through 14, he says, uh, he defines what the works of darkness are in contrast to the armor of light, and among them is quarreling and jealousy. Romans 14, as he begins this whole discourse on disputable matters, he says, welcome your weaker brother, but not to quarrels over opinion. That is a work of darkness and not part of the armor of light. Quarreling, disputing, arguing, fighting, whatever. For me, a, a mantra that has been a pastoral mantra for my life has been, do no harm. Do no harm. Do no harm to the work of God that he's doing in another person's life. Do no harm. That sometimes involves doing positive things, but sometimes it involves me restraining myself from exercising my liberty before someone who may have a weak conscience. Or sometimes resisting, raising an issue that might cause a dispute, uh, a dispute among us. Walk in love with one another. Thirdly, live fully in the kingdom of God. I used to have such clarity in my mind what the kingdom of God was, and it was always futuristic. It was always millennial kingdom out there. I love Romans 14, 17, because it brings the kingdom of God present in our midst among us. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness. Lives that are holy and righteous, and then uh, having that outward display of righteousness, which is justice as we live in the world. Peace, the foundation of peace is just being accepted by God and accepted by one another in the body of Christ. Righteousness, peace, joy, something the Holy Spirit bursts in our hearts as part of the fruit of the Spirit. I was reading, uh, and I, I commend to you, uh, Don 
uh, I wasn't going to say this. <laughs> Don's uh, uh, autobiography on, on longing, leaving the land of numb. And uh, one of the, you had a quote in there, and you emphasized one portion of Tolkien's quote. But the other part of it was, that one day when we get to glory, we're going to have joy. And he said that joy is going to be as poignant as grief. Now, grief is pretty poignant, right? Grief just cuts to the quick of your spirit. But one day when we, re- when we arrive in glory, our joy is going to be as poignant as grief. And that's the joy that we have in the Holy Spirit. It's righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And if you're living in that kingdom, Paul says in verse 18 and 19, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. (laughs) What more do you want? Acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Four, worship in the unity of in the unity of God's gracious welcome. Romans 14, 1 through 15 starts out with quarreling and it ends with voices joined together in praise. Isn't that beautiful? It starts with quarreling and it ends with voices joined together in unity of praise to Almighty God. Hear the text. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What a call to unity. What a call to be together in the body of Christ. We've lost our sense about unity. We do not know how to unify as Protestants. We only know how to divide. Unity in the body of Christ is not a failure of argument of trying to persuade everybody to your viewpoint. Unity in the body of Christ is not a failure of argument. It's a failure of virtue. It's a failure of virtue. It's a failure of love. It's a failure of mutual consideration. It's a failure of patient forbearance. It's a failure of virtue. For... A long time, unity of the church has been something very important to me. Even as I was leaving my fundamental Baptist background, going to teach at a fundamental Baptist college, I was totally uh, enraptured by a passage in the Corinthians where Paul said, why are you arguing over Paul and Cephas and all these individuals? They're all yours. And I got a, a theme in my heart that said, I want it all. I, I don't want to choose one slice and be impoverished and not have Paul when I could have just as Cephas, where I could have Paul and could have Paul. I want it all. Why are we so tenacious about splitting it up in these little segments? We're rich in Christ, and we need to embrace the full richness that's there. And Paul admonishes us welcome one another. Why? Because it might just be you're the one who's wrong. <laughs> As much as hard, as hard as that is to even conceive, you just might be the one who's wrong, and I might just be the one who's wrong. And if you agree on these substantial matters, welcome and receive one another. And in the bottom line of it, when we get to heaven, 
It really doesn't matter. Those big issues that we fight over and divide over and split over. Even one of the most insane things to me in the body of Christ is baptism and the Eucharist were given to us as instruments of unity because they make us one. What did denominations fight over? Baptism and Lord's Supper. That's idiocy. Total idiocy. God help us. God help us. Over the years, I've come to some determinations as a minister. And I want to offer them to you. And you can embrace them or not, but I encourage you to. Because it's where I am. And here's what I'd like to offer you. I've got eight determinations. I will keep my list of essentials for Christian fellowship very short. I'm going to keep my list of essentials for Christian fellowship very short, basically creedal items. I will allow as much space as possible in the structure and commitments of the church and denomination to which I belong to allow room for people with tier two and tier three differences from me. I'm going to allow space. I want to meet people where they are in their walk with Christ, because they're all a work of God. And I need to honor that, and I need to receive that, I need to bless that, and not seek somehow to dissuade them for their positions on secondary and tertiary issues and somehow trip them up in their walk. I need to value differences from my own views, because many times they correct me or they pull me to center. I need to hear your views. I need to hear your ideas. Many times they correct me. Pull me to center. I will continue to move toward others until they no longer receive me. I will consider unity in the body of Christ a matter of obedience and not convenience. Unity is a matter of obedience to the prayer of Jesus Christ and the command of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. Keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I will trust the Lordship of Jesus Christ to lead, to teach, and ultimately to judge His children, and I will not take that role upon myself. That's a hard one. But it's one I want to endeavor to do. And lastly, I will seek to offer reconciling love and unconditional welcome and mutual honor to others in the body of Christ. Why? because that's what God has given me. Unconditional love. Reconciling love, unconditional welcome, and honor. That's the least I can do to offer it to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the work that you're doing in every person's life. We embrace it. We rejoice in it. We celebrate it. Help us never, God, to destroy it. Help us never, God, to cause another person to stumble by our foolishness. May we exalt Jesus Christ as Lord. May we embrace the kingdom. May we walk in love. And may we rejoice in the unity that we have in Jesus Christ to the honor and praise of Almighty God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.